do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Steady. Hey, folks. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with a woman whose story and thinking has greatly influenced ours. Someone who's regularly counted amongst the world's most important visionaries and environmentalists, and who inspired us before this interview to take some extra deep breaths, do multiple nervous wheeze, and fumble our words because she's truly a global treasure. Helena Norberg-Hodge is the woman on the other end of the line, a writer, filmmaker, international speaker, and leader of the global localization movement, who's been promoting an economics of personal, social, and ecological well-being for more than 40 years. If you're not familiar with her work, go ahead and steep yourself in it. One of my favorites is her film, The Economics of Happiness, which spells out the the costs of globalization. And also her book, Ancient Futures, Learning from Ladakh, which tells the story of her extraordinary experiences in a remote region of Tibetan India, while also deeply questioning Western notions of progress. It's the ultimate bedtime reading for fellow geeky future steaders. The other reason it's super freaking awesome that we have Helena on the podcast today is that we're in the thick of World Localization Day festivities. This is a worldwide celebration of local food headed up by Helena and her team. The day itself is June the 20th, but all month you can register and host a local food feast that brings people together over grub, COVID permitting, that you've grown or sourced in your local area or know the provenance of. It's a great excuse to chuck a rustic garden party for all your mates and have some wine-assisted conversations about local food while you're at it. We'll pop the details of World Localization Day and how you can get involved in our show notes. And for now, let's hang out with Helena Norberg-Hodge. You probably have told this story ad infinitum, but to start off with, Helena, we'd love to hear about how you ended up on that mountainous plateau in remote in a remote part of India, Ladakh. Yeah, well, I ended up there because I was quite good at learning languages. I was living and working as a linguist in Paris, and I was asked to write as part of a film team to this unknown place that had been completely sealed off from the outside world, and there was a German anthropological film team going out to film these remote people. They assumed that there wouldn't be anyone who could speak English or German, so they wanted me to come along and try to pick up a bit of the language, and I went thinking I'd be going for six weeks, but it ended up being 40 years, <laughs> and that, you know, I've been spending a good part of the year for many, many years there, yeah, over a 40-year period. And it was just just such a remarkable place, such a remarkable culture where people had evolved in, in deep dialogue with their place on the earth. And their place on the earth was a very rough and difficult environment. They were up at 12,000 feet on the Tibetan plateau, and it was basically a desert. Um, 
like four inches of rain a year. And um, it was part of Tibet culturally and, and on the Tibetan plateau, the Dalai Lama was the spiritual head. But this part of Tibet belonged politically to India from about the 1840s. But it hadn't really made much of a difference, uh, you know, that it belonged to India because the outside influences had been so minor and mainly because it was so remote. So it was snowed in for about eight months of the year and a very harsh environment, about 100 villages stretched out over a large area, about 40,000 square miles. Um, but I discovered just basically the healthiest, happiest, most confident, most equanimous sort of peaceful people I had ever met. And I guess more than anything, what was so striking was just the laughter, the humor, the sense of lightness, of being. So most people who, who met them and, and many other Tibetans as well would just fall in love right away, which I did. And I did pick up quite a lot of the language. And when the filming was finished, I just decided to stay. I was going to be doing a, a PhD on the language. Um, and I went off, uh, I ended up working with Noam Chomsky, who's a well-known linguist. But after about a year, I decided to abandon the PhD. I had done a, a dictionary of the local language. The, the spoken language hadn't been written down before. So it was a little bit like learning to speak Italian. Uh, and the written books they had were in their Latin, which was ancient Tibetan. So that's the beginning of my story. I better not monologue you too much. <laughs> Helena, I'm intrigued to know, you spoke about it being a harsh place geographically, but I'm more interested in the sense of place that humanity finds itself in. How did you, as a, a young Swedish female, find your place in the social circumstances that you found yourself in enough to leave you there for 40 years? Yeah, and 40 years is a bit exaggerated in that for the first couple of years I was living with the people and actually not all the time in Ladakh but also in uh, other parts of India studying the language and working with Ladakhis and Tibetans. So I was out in that part of the world for two years before I went back. And then after that, it was politically sensitive. So I was there for about half of every year, for probably about 10, 15 years, and then became less and less. And now I haven't actually been back there for the last five years. But um, I found myself in a situation where well, like I said, these people were just so lovely and it was just so fascinating to live in a world where the, basically the industrial world had not arrived and to see that even things like nail clippers and, and cooking pots and beautiful silver religious objects and copper pots and all these things were made by blacksmiths over just a bit of coal and they just seemed to have everything you needed. It was just, uh, it was, yeah, really remarkable to go back in time in that way and to find it so satisfying. So it was, 
things were in walking distance of people. And even when it meant walking from one village to another, you were walking through the most exquisite, beautiful mountains. It was a joy to do that. And so time was slower. Experiences were richer. Um, I just felt very at home. And I have to say, most of the women, especially who arrived in Ladakh for many, many years, even now, actually, when it's changed a lot now. But I used to hear again and again people saying, I must have been here in another lifetime. I just feel like I've come home. And um, and then on top of it, because I was the only one, I think, in living memory who had learned their language, I was so loved. I was so, you know, in the beginning, you know, everywhere I went, people's mouths would just drop open, you know, hearing me speak their language. and. That was so appreciated, and then I became famous so that wherever I went, everybody had heard of Helena Dolma, you know, my Ladakhi name. So it was just, it was an incredible joy and privilege. And I guess I was in a particularly exciting situation too, because the people who first came out to Ladakh were very interesting filmmakers, writers, adventurers, who came from all over the world, and I was, you know, the one who spoke the language and could help them sometimes with their filmmaking, with their research. So it was a very, it was a very sort of blessed um, situation. I was also under surveillance and suspicion um, by the Indian, well, a number of Indian intelligence services that were there because. Ladakh was a disputed territory. The border between Tibet, central Tibet and Ladakh was was disputed. There was army along the border there. And on the other side, you had Pakistan with another disputed border. And for that reason, the Indian government was extremely nervous of foreigners coming to the area. They assumed that you were a CIA agent. And so I was, I was tailed, and I sometimes was arrested, and I couldn't, I couldn't receive mail. Very often I'd get an envelope, but the contents would be missing, or, and many times they just wouldn't arrive. And in fact, early on, I think already in the first year, maybe second year, there was in the Hindustan Times an article saying, how can they allow this mysterious German woman who picks up the language in a suspiciously short time? How can they let her stay? She should be kicked out. And so that was sometimes difficult to deal with. And in fact, I have to say, being accused of being a spy became really quite, was really quite damaging. I remember being quite sort of paranoid about it. So even when I was back in the West and I would tell people about this, I'd suddenly think, oh, my God, they're going to think I'm a spy too. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that that you can't prove that you're not a spy. And it was a bit strange for many people that I would, you know, even to my family, you know, hadn't been there. I think, why, you know, have I gone and abandoned my life in the West, you know, and fallen in love with this place and, I was sort of the perfect material for a spy, speaking all those languages. But anyway, that was um, 
overall, it was just an absolute joy and 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 a privilege. And I started working with local people fairly soon. Already, already in the second year, I had I had read *Smallest Beautiful*, a book by an economist named Schumacher, who had had a similar experience to me. He had been to Burma and discovered that people were amazingly healthy, happy, and in true terms, quite wealthy. So he started questioning his own economic theories and came up with this very strong message about scale being so important and 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 also warned about technology and, and came up with the concept of appropriate technology. So influenced by him, or rather strengthened by the knowledge that there had been this important man, male economist, who thought that the conventional development path was destructive. And yes, he was an advocate of renewable energy as well. Um, I started projects there in Ladakh to demonstrate that solar energy, particularly passive solar energy, was a wonderful alternative to the coal and the gas uh, and the petroleum and diesel that the Indian government was starting to bring up. And particularly for heating, you know, it was just ideal for passive solar. And so I started projects to demonstrate that as an alternative to the fossil fuel. Um, sometimes people would think, you know, how can you as a Westerner go in there and change the culture, you know, and tell them they should do solar? Well, we have to be aware that everywhere in the world now people are being pressured to conform to this consumer monoculture, which is pushing fossil fuels everywhere. So doing the renewable energy as an alternative made a lot of sense. And I started working with Ladakhi leaders, and they, um, despite the Indian government, so they belong politically to India, so the sort of regional government is run by Indians. And there were all these secret police, as I was saying, because it was a strategic border zone. So they were warning the local people by getting involved with this CIA-led project. But, but still the leaders actually left their government jobs and joined this ecological development group. And we did some really um, wonderful work in passive solar heating. We introduced greenhouses, which had an amazingly positive effect. Um, the, the growing season traditionally was about four months a year. And with these greenhouses, you could actually have some green, fresh leaves and vegetables for about 10 months of the year. And um, so... And we also did solar water heating, later on small-scale hydro schemes, ramp pumps, uh, and then a lot of work around warning about the chemical agriculture that the Indian government was introducing, um, which included things like PDT, which had been outlawed in the West. So there's actually a huge need for a deeper dialogue between the West and so-called global south or third world, because they do not get to hear about the problems that many of these modern progressive chemicals and other practices have created. And they also get the impression that we all live this amazing 
life, you know, luxury and never working. So there's a, there's a real need for that deeper dialogue. Yeah, I've, I've heard a phrase, a beautiful phrase recently that we have to remember our way to the future. And I feel like it captures that, that marriage of technology, but also this wisdom and knowingness that we have there that's kind of latent, like a seed. And is this, is this the kind of thing that you envision for a healthier future, being able to call on the judicious use of technology, but also embrace localization and bring it back to the village and the community? Absolutely. I, I know it can sound unrealistic to think that we could sort of live in village structures, but I am so clear from where I'm sitting, which is with a lot of experience of many different countries and many different languages also, as I said. And it's so clear that when people have gone down the path of separation, where we were herded into urban centers, and divided from, separated from the land. And instead of being directly um, dependent on the land, we became dependent on enormous institutions that mediated our relationship to the land, which feeds us and which provides our building materials, all our basic needs, and also our not basic needs. and I witnessed, you know, firsthand in Ladakh and later on in Bhutan, where I worked also over a five-year period, how this separation of pushing people into city, creating dependence on anonymous institutions, and suddenly creating a scarcity of jobs led to not just frightening friction between different groups that had lived side by side for centuries, but depression and aggression of all kinds. It, it's, it's really a, a rupture that is so, so destructive and I would argue lies behind most of our social problems and, of course, behind our environmental problems. So on a crowded planet, for many people it would seem strange and, and not possible, but what I'm arguing is that because we're so crowded, we have to decentralize. We cannot afford the cities where every person uses more resources per capita. That is a luxury which is no longer affordable. And it turns out that it's a luxury that isn't actually such a luxury. The evidence for this is to just look at if we have, if we're able to, and I've had the opportunity to do that, to look, you know, from Japan and South Korea to South America, to Scandinavia, where I'm from, to see how many privileged people who can afford to live either in a smaller town or in the heart, heart of a big city, people are choosing to live closer to nature. And those who can't afford to do that are people who are condemned, pulled into a dependence on jobs in urban centers. So we do need policy change to make this possible. But right now our governments, unfortunately, are, are wedded to the idea of urbanization. Actually, I don't want to say they're wedded to the idea of urbanization. What we have is a sort of automatic pilot of holistic, interdependent structures that that are, or let's say, systemic interdependent structures that are pushing 
the human race into bigger and bigger cities. So the system now is is structured in such a way that every government is essentially separating us further and further from the sources of our food. And in doing so, they are creating a situation where countries are importing and exporting the same food stuff and, and creating the most unbelievable waste of energy, toxic fumes, climate emissions, and all in the name of growth. Um, and in actual fact, most people are getting poorer. So we need to support a path which would take us in exactly the opposite direction towards smaller towns and smaller cities. We can start when, when we live in a big city. We can join the local food movement, which is growing around the world, despite the fact that governments are not supporting it. The global media is not supporting it. There's, you know, there's a remarkable and hugely inspiring movement that we call the global local food movement. Because again, as I say, from Japan and China to South America to Africa, everywhere you go, you will see either traditional smallholder farmers in the hundreds of millions, or you see these new initiatives where people are going against the tide to get back to the land, to have a relationship with the sources of their food, or at least have a relationship with the farmers, at least have some knowledge of where it comes from, knowing that these are ways of encouraging more diversified production. Because when you shorten the distances between the farm and the table, you have market pressure towards diversity. A farmer's market in Sydney does not want 100 tons of straight carrots. That is in the mega system. That's in the system of giant supermarket chains linked to its global trade in food. And all the way along the line, it's replacing people with energy and technology. So the giant harvesting machines, the processing technology, the washing, the supermarket shelves and the packaging, all of it demands uniform standard product. And it's being reduced. The biodiversity is being reduced as we speak. And also, you know, an apple or a carrot that doesn't fit the machinery usually just gets wasted, thrown away. It's the most horrific, wasteful, toxic, climate-causing system. So we really must um, come back to smaller scale. We can do it in the city, right where we are. We can join the movement that is linking up with the region around us. Stay away from the propaganda that's trying to say we need to go high-rise, that we need vertical agriculture. That's a corporate, profit-oriented, and usually rather toxic approach, so inefficient, um, you know, to, on the other hand, for the cities to link up with their region. And in the city, people are also linking up to create co-housing, to create community groups that support each other. We've seen a lot of that in COVID. And this is what we call the broader localization movement. Um, and that is coming out of understanding the fundamental principles 
required for human, psychological, and spiritual well-being, hand in hand with the well-being of all the rest of life, the diversity, the incredible richness of life. Helena, there's no doubt that you, more than probably anyone I've researched and come across, have a wealth or an understanding of the system as a whole more than just about anyone. You know, you realise that endless growth is not sustainable, that wealth inequality is, is toxic, that waste is clogging our system. You know, that um, the monoculture of diversity and, and our local food systems and cultural depth are all to varying degrees in places of crisis. So you've joined the dots and I feel like that's something that's lacking with our global governments and and culturally. It's not the narrative that we speak. We, we are more comfortable speaking in silos, but you, however, do not. You've joined the dots, but um, for those of us who are still on that transition path to understand how everything is interconnected, I want to understand how you got to the place where you understood that, one, there was interconnectivity, but more importantly, how you worked out which parts of the system you would focus on. You are a woman of great knowledge. How did you land on the local food system being the most in need of someone with your knowledge? Well, I... I absolutely can't imagine how I would have landed on this without Ladakh. So I'm amazed that there are other people who somehow, you know, have figured these things out. And so in Ladakh, you know, it was so clear that everyone grew up knowing how to grow food, how to build houses, how to make clothing, how to make music, sing and dance. It was sort of multidimensional people with multidimensional tasks. And there was some specialization, but so much less than in our culture. And then I saw how with modernity, suddenly the schooling was training people to literally in their entire formative youth, you know, from the age of five or something to the age of 20, to learn nothing about those practical skills. And if they came out of college with the idea, <clears throat> or maybe right before college, wanting to learn about food, well, then it was agriculture, and it was a few chemicals, a few standard products, a few standard breeds of animals, literally leading these agricultural experts to import Jersey cows, Jersey cows that could not even go to the grazing lands in Ladakh, where they had thousands of animals, so the local cow mixed with the yak, well adapted to 18,000 foot pastures. Now they're bringing Jersey cows that can't even go up there. And guess what? You have to bring in industrialized pellets to feed them. And with it, you brought in a, you know, a cow that did produce a bit more milk, but also had many more illnesses and was much more vulnerable um, yeah, to illness and, and death. So I saw all this. I saw also that with all the animals they had, butter was one of the most important food products for them. And now suddenly butter was being transported into Ladakh, selling for half the price of local butter. So these things 
force my eyes to be opened to how this dominant system operates. It forced me to look at it in a systemic way. And I guess it's a very rare experience I've had. I realized that. And, and I think as a woman, I was paying more attention to, let's say, also the inner life. You know, I was, I was sensitive to the psychological changes that came. I was, I was alert to the difference between the sort of radiantly self-confident and joyous teenager in the traditional setting and what was happening with modernity and young people suffering from depression. And, you know, I was aware of the, the change in relationships as suddenly there was tension between Buddhists and Muslims who had lived side by side for 500 years. There had never been group conflict. And, yeah, so I think I had a combination of probably I'm fairly sensitive and I have studied psychology and philosophy, so fairly introspective and sensitive and thrown into a situation that forced me to see this complexity and systemic forces that affected what was a system, if you like, a cultural economic system that had not been um, affected either by slavery or colonialism or development. So it was a very rare situation that, as I say, forced me to see these relationships. And, and I guess what happened too, as I saw these things happening in Ladakh, when I then went on to work in Bhutan and I was alert to almost the identical pattern of change, Except there, you know, we had Hindus and Buddhists who lived side by side for generations who were now also killing each other because of the pressures of this modern system. And then going back to Sweden, I was more alert to the fact that what was happening to the food system and found that in the 70s, the largest food corporation in Sweden was Philip Morris, because they had bought Kraft, I think it was. And that from Sweden, they were putting potatoes, sending potatoes by lorry to go to Italy to be washed and put in plastic bags and then taken back again by road. Now, as we've been studying this for years in my organization, we're seeing these things are flown across the world, you know. So Australia flies food to China to be processed, flies macadamia nuts from Barnaby Bay to be cracked open, flies scallops from Tasmania to be cracked open. And in the meanwhile, you know, fish is flown from Norway to be deboned in China, flown back again. And this is going on across the world. And yet we don't hear about this in the climate movement. It's so important that we try to use our, you know, I'm so glad that you're in changing globally, this global economic system is not studied. It's not studied in academia, it's not discussed in the global media. And so when people start looking at some of the craziness, they assume that the people in power are just totally evil and they know exactly what they're doing. My experience is that they really do not see what they're doing. They're just adhering to dogma about growth and the idea that growing the economy actually does benefit people. Mm. Helena, you spoke about the rupture 
that exists between us and our place and our food and each other. How have you gone about healing that rupture in your own life and embodying this understanding that you have? Well, you see, that's a really interesting question because I, when I, when I experienced how much happier I was living out there and later on I met my husband, that was after three years, and he came and joined me and we dreamed of living in community close to the land as we did in Ladakh. And we bought land in rural Spain, and we tried to live that way. And I realized already then, this was in the early 80s, that climate change was happening, that the pressures that were increasing violence and toxic pollution, all of this. So I became passionately engaged in trying to share this understanding, both the critique of the dominant direction and a, a clear path towards systemic healing, you know, that I called localization, because the driving mechanism that was making things so much worse was that global corporations were getting more and more power over our governments, more and more power over us, partly through their role in both media and academia. And so this localizing path that helped people reconnect each other and to place at the local level was so clearly a solution multiplier. So I ended up doing more of that educational work and pleading for other people to also invest some of their time in that. And now, you know, as I look back, I'm, I'm um, no, I guess I can't say I have any regrets because I see that people have tried in the current context to create those perfect communities. It's, it's extremely difficult to do so. And I'm still hoping that more people will put effort into getting the word out about just key, essentially simple policy changes that we need uh, to make it so, so much easier for us to survive on this planet, not to only survive, to thrive on this planet, it's, it's simple things. It's basically governments need to stop removing regulations for global corporations while over-regulating local and, and even national businesses. Every place-based business, every individual, every family living in a particular country is squeezed with regulations and with taxes. And the regulations are getting more and more onerous as at the global level, and this is what many people don't look at, at the global level, global banks and corporations are gaining more and more wealth and power, and the centralizing, globalizing path leads to more and more bureaucratic and regulatory uh, squeezing of everybody else, while they pay no tax virtually and have no regulation and can sue our governments if our governments do anything to reduce their power or profit. So this is the issue that we should all be talking about, because if we could get the awareness out, I believe that the vast majority from left to right would want to see a restoration of some kind of democracy which would come about as governments come together 
to collaborate, to say, no, sorry, you global corporations are not going to become wealthier than we are. You are not going to be suing us because we don't do what you want us to do. We are going to now put some rules in place for you. And if you don't adhere to those, we, we're, we're going to ban you. You can't come into our country. We will then rely on our local and national businesses for what we need. And we as a collective, you know, I'm, I'm suggesting this to start with as a sort of breakaway strategy that a few countries come together to create a trading block, which is all about supporting their local, regional, national businesses to thrive and to thrive within the understanding that we need to work with biodiversity, with the living earth, which is our economy, which is our mother, which is who we are. So there is no distinction between the health of individuals and the health of non-human life. The rest of life and human beings, we are one. And, and this is a, um, it's wonderful to see now the recognition of the role of indigenous people and in having demonstrated to us that things work much better when we respect that. And yeah, I think there's a there's a real hope that the huge awakening that's happening will also extend into this economic arena, which I know can sound a bit heady and a bit heavy. So I'm sorry to go on about it so much. <laughs> No, don't don't apologise. It's um, quite an honour to listen to your knowledge being shared, but I have to say it leaves me feeling maybe heavy and maybe a little hopeless. And for someone who is a fair way down the path of having all those dots joined and understanding the importance of the interconnectedness of it all. It makes me wonder where you find hope and what words you might have, given that you are sort of the bearer of knowledge that we all seek guidance from. Where's the hope for us to to continue to collectively come together and and bring change to the to the fore? All right. Well, the simple, clear way to say it is that, particularly in the last thirty years. What government policy has meant is that the majority of people are getting poorer and poorer. The majority of people are having to work longer hours to just have a roof over their head and food on the table and basic, you know, education, health care and so on. We are told that the economy needs to grow in order to prevent people from having to work so hard, from feeling so pressured, being so in debt. The truth is that the economy is growing in a way that is systematically destroying jobs, impoverishing the majority, while destroying the real economy, Mother Gaia. So the big hope is that when people really wake up to this, they will realize that they've been subjected to ideas that are truly undermining any hope of making change. The ideas they've been subjected to are that they are the ones who are so greedy, they who live in a rich country, they're driving their cars and they just want more and more stuff and look at the statistics, all the use of energy and this and that. 
and it's their fault. And what's wrong with these people? They are greedy and selfish. We're in a climate where we're being blamed and it translates also into deep inner self-blame, feelings of guilt. Now that is very disempowering, even for people who are quite green, really trying to change things. And on the other side, people who are feeling so trapped and squeezed economically are beginning to become more and more skeptical about the whole climate debate, about the environment, and they listen to demagogues that say, we're going to grow the economy for you. You know, you really have to make your country great again. Forget about climate. Forget about the Amazon. So my hope is that there will be a wake-up that we will say, oh, actually the truth is that our governments, as part of a whole path and a system, we're pushing in a direction that has led to this tragic and crazy situation where giant businesses are getting wealthier and wealthier and the majority of people are getting poorer. And, and yet the discourse, the narrative, doesn't even address what government and big business have been doing. It doesn't even talk about these emissions. And so there is a, a reality there that needs to get out. And I feel so hopeful seeing in the last few years that many people who were on the left, who were actually very skeptical about localization and not particularly critical about globalization either, particularly in, in the beginning, they weren't. Um, but they are coming around. They are now realizing, Naomi Klein, for instance, whom I've known for many, many years, and um, she just now has come around to really embrace localization. She's going to be in our program, the World Localization Day program, which is just started. It's a program that runs from mid-May to June 20th, and um, where we're celebrating and making visible the localization movement, which is incredibly hopeful because it not only we, we don't only see people changing their thinking, but changing their practice. So there's a real movement out there where as people start reconnecting locally and rebuilding the community fabric and with it, the local economic structures, meaning creating human scale institutions that become interdependent and where you can see your dependence on others, where you can feel that life is one. So the spiritual teachings are then not just some abstract concept, but you actually experience it in a deeper way, as indigenous people did. So the localization movement coming together to rebuild the community fabric and the local economy, which is also the fabric of interdependence with the natural world. So we start seeing the water and the soil and the trees and the plants and the animals on whom we depend. So the combination of people turning in that direction, even or even they often um, haven't necessarily studied the global economy, which I know that can make people feel heavy and depressed when I talk about it. But many millions of people are turning intuitively towards the local, towards that place-based way of living and doing things. In addition, very importantly, more intellectual leaders on the left 
from Noam Chomsky, whom I studied with, to George Monbiot, to, as I mentioned, Naomi Klein, um, Brian Eno, if you've heard of him, Russell Brand, who's been a, a bit of a friend now for several years and quoted me in his book, Revolution, quite a lot. These people are changing their thinking and that combination of the change of the view, the vision, the worldview, the narrative, along with the specifics of real-life demonstrations at the local level, that is a mix that gives me really a lot of hope. I'm not, um, I'm not saying that everything is going to be solved overnight. I'm not saying that we're not going to have more crises. I think we will. But I think there is real hope that in another full, I think, you know, the change in understanding, which is the big, big thing that needs to happen, could happen very quickly. Once the penny is dropped, it's in a way sort of, you know, this, you can't put this sort of, what's it called again? You can't put it back in its box again once it gets out. And I think that's what's happening. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm also worried about the way that COVID has strengthened big tech companies and our dependence on the screen made it more difficult for us to get out and build those systems of localized interdependence that we need. But COVID also so strengthened the appetite for that. So we've seen very, very hopeful signs from all over the world. Just wanting to thank you, Helena, for being someone who has helped me swim to the surface of some murkier issues and really gain a new sense of clarity. And I really thank you for all the work that you do and fitting us in today and um, getting the word out there in such a, a strong and compassionate way that you do. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. It's just so lovely to meet you. Where are you, by the way? We're actually in different locations. So I'm in northeast Victoria in a tiny little town called Beechworth where I farm regeneratively and Katie. And I am in Melbourne um, in a pretty urban part of Melbourne um, but doing some backyard farming and trying to, to green where we can. Well, I'd love to meet you and I hope you've thought of doing a local food feast. Do you know about our local food feast? Yes, we'd love you to give... If you have a second, Helena, a little spiel about that because we're having a couple of local food feasts here. Um, I'm sure Jade's in on the action, but if you'd like to tell people about that. We're having World Localization Day as this whole program from 15th of May to June 20th. And we're working with our colleagues on six continents in about 25 countries. And they are putting on events in their own languages all around the world to really open people's eyes about how incredibly empowering it is to have a more holistic view, both of the systemic problems we face, the fact that almost every issue that is depressing and heavy is actually linked, they're interlinked, the poverty, the loss of democracy, the pandemic, climate change, extinction of species, the cruelty of animals in factory farming, all of these are linked. And once you really see that clearly, that in itself is incredibly empowering because then you realize there's something that we can all focus on together 
of course, still keeping focus on our single issue concerns, but we all would gain, well, so much. I mean, most of the crises are actually caused by that economic system. And if they aren't, they're being exacerbated by it. And if it's not that, then the money and the media support that you would need to do something about those issues is disappearing for the same reason. So when you see that, that's already very important. Then when you see that localizing brings with it these multiple win-win-win solutions, again, it's the systemic alternative that helps to regenerate the ecosystem. In local food economies, we can actually produce more per acre of land. That may be the most important point to understand the vital importance of rebuilding local food economies. Now, when you bring into that also the community building, the financial structures to create more local economies and community structures, you start getting unbelievable win-win um, paths that are being demonstrated. So at the heart of all this is local food, and it's the underpinning, really, of, of, of moving away from this system of divisiveness and violence and depression. What we're seeing around the local food systems is depression, alcoholism, uh, violence, juvenile delinquence, prisons, healed as they come together over soil and growing food in community, as they're helped to relate to each other in a very different way from the way we've been trained to do it in the West, which is mainly about trying to keep a mask on, that we're all perfect, we're all, we don't need anybody. The circles that are emerging in the localization movement say the opposite. We need each other. We need each other, and we have evolved in interdependence with one another. As we start recognizing that and engage in a more vulnerable, open-hearted way, these deep addictions and, and, as I say, even violence can be healed, and almost all the therapies that are effective have to do with bringing people together in that community circle, and when they add to that the deep engagement with nature, the deep reconnection, often also in wilderness, and for me that's sort of my church, that's where I really rejuvenate every day. But when you also bring it together with the practical work of growing and gardening, and learning to plant from seed and so on, it has another dimension then added to the spiritual healing, the true nature, the community healing through connection with people, you're actually also developing skills and feel productive. And that adds another dimension. That means it is like, yeah, just an amazing formula. So we want to make this visible. We want to celebrate this. We want more people to engage with it. Not just about shopping locally. It's about Maybe if you look around wherever you live, you will find that there is a community garden or you will find some people who want to start another farmer's market or some people who want to start a project that is specifically about healing in connection with local food. So local food feasts 
are a central part of our World Localization Day. And the actual day of this year is on June 20th. But people are already now starting to organize local food feasts around the world. And we're hoping to have a thousand. I hope that you will join us. And we are realizing that in many parts of the world, it may be a Zoom meal. It may be, there may still be lockdown. But we're asking people to make a meal where they think about where their food comes from, not to feel guilty and terrible. It is not all local. But they they do it in the spirit of supporting that movement, buying as much as they can that's local, and perhaps linking up with someone else on Zoom, or perhaps it's a family meal, perhaps it's a community meal, perhaps it's even closing down a whole street in town and have a bigger celebration. Uh, so those these events are taking place already, and... I yeah, hope that all of you can join and strengthen this movement and strengthen the deep joy and healing that comes from this. It's just amazing to see what can happen when you support diversification on the farm. That's how you can massively increase the productivity. It's also how you massively increase the joy of working there. It's how you massively increase the playful wilderness from the earthworm to other species. So you're actually engaging in a formula that restores ecosystems at the same time that you increase the productivity from the land. The giant monocultures pushed by the global trade and bigger, better, faster path that governments are pushing destroys diversity, creates monocultures. It really is a deadly path. It's anti-life. So once you see that, you'll get, you know, I think, I hope my message brings more joy and more empowerment than, than a feeling of, oh, the system is so big. It's in millions of small that we become far, far bigger than, you know, in one big. It's an incredibly heady invitation and it's very close to my heart and I imagine close to the hearts of just about everybody that listens in every week. Thank you so much for taking an hour out of your day, Helena. We really are incredibly grateful. Thank you so much and very much hope to stay in touch. Indeed, us too. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Helena. Lots of love. Bye. Lots of love to you. Bye-bye. You can find Helena at localfutures.org and worldlocalizationday.org, and that's with a Z. Let us know if you're hosting a feast. And we couldn't have done this interview without the dudes from Open Doors Studios in Beechworth. Thanks to Open Door Studios, you bloody legends. See you all next Monday for another nutritious natter.